back to the Keen Lake Podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, this is Jake coming live from, well, not my basement, but on a little field trip today out at Whiskey Acres in DeKalb, Illinois. I almost said Iowa. Not sure why. Maybe it's because where I'm from. Um, there you hear stickering in the background is Mr. Ian Stewart. Hello. He's going to be helping me co-hosting today. Is that okay with you? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try and hold up the proud tradition. <laughs> oh yeah, of all the fallen co-hosts of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, um, actually, we uh, finally got to come out to Whiskey Acres after I'm not sure how many months of trying to put this podcast together. And Ian was the middleman between us all, and the person that's also across from me right now, Mr. Nick Nagel. Thanks for having me. And you haven't even made it halfway to Iowa yet. No, that's true. So We're just... still about 115 miles away. <laughs> I do this uh, route many times enough. On I love heading down 88 over to Iowa to go to some football games or head home for Christmas, and that's about it. Good over to Des Moines. But uh, Nick, the co-founder of Whiskey Acres, thank you for having us. My pleasure. Thanks for coming out. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Yeah, after I'm not sure how many months of trying to do so, but um, let's just get right into it. We just walked around the grounds here. Uh, it's a beautiful little area to come see, especially here in the summertime while everything is green and fresh. But what was the uh, beginning of Whiskey Acres? Well, I have two business partners, Jim and Jamie Walter, and uh, we have built Whiskey Acres on their family's farm. So they've been farming here since the 1930s and, um, you know, have, have been have been doing a, an awesome job at raising high quality grain, uh, you know, but often like look at the map or look, look east and realize how close we are to Chicago mm-hmm. and then extrapolate that we've actually never sent a load of corn to Chicago. Really? It all goes west, you know, away from the city, you know, the third largest metro center in, in the United <laughs> States. And so, you know, there's just always this sort of aspiration. Let's find something. Let's find a way to add value to the farm and, you know, capitalize on proximity to the city of Chicago. Um, you know, that's, I think, kind of Jim's story. And also, you know, a kind of fun side note is he, in late 2000s, was awarded a title Master Farmer. So four farmers in the state of Illinois every year given that title based off of like being recommended by their peers. And you're given that title based off like, are you a good steward of the land? Are you a good member of the community? Do you work towards uh, helping the next generation be a better farmer and better steward of the land? And, you know, that gave him no ego, but maybe opened his eyes a little bit mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm doing something special, but at the same time, I'm, I'm raising a commodity. And when you raise a commodity, whether you do it well or just do it average, you don't make any more money off of it. So there was this look of how, how can we diversify the farm and really kind of leverage what we're doing as special here. At the same time, or sort of concurrently, Jamie, his son, uh, came, went to law school and came back to the farm and uh, you know, had some very successful years, but sort of taking the long look of farming might not always, you know, the, the grain prices, commodity prices might not always be as, as uh, lucrative as they are. So how can you know, we bolt something onto the farm that helps us get it to the next generation when crops, crop prices aren't? lucrative. Um, he also has a, uh, or had a project with another, he and his wife and another couple where they were using, um, crush pad to custom blend Cabernet Sauvignons out of Napa Valley. Hmm. So they were contracting, you know, the picking and the pressing and, and basically, you know, had some fun trips. They were able to go to Napa and put blends together and really made some fantastic, fantastic stuff. Really? Uh, that was going on in like 2007, eight, nine. Okay. And then Crush Pad went out of business due to the, the crash. crash. Yeah. And essentially what happened, though, is they had some really fantastic wine that they owned but didn't have possession of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can imagine what it's like to get wine to cross state lines uh, when it's yours but you don't have it. <laughs> and 
so in so many words, he said, I'm never going to do this again. You know, uh-huh. I, I want, I want to recreate the process, but I'm never going to be in a position where I don't have control. And so, you know, came back, you know, with sort of the foundation of his dad's, you know, mentality of let's, what can we do? What can we do the special on the farm? And corn mazes and pumpkin farms and all that kind of stuff had been done before. Uh, he was looking at, at uh, specialty popcorn varieties. And he tells a story that one day he had the epiphany of like reading a magazine, sipping a whiskey and looked out at his backyard and saw corn being grown and went, bourbon is the fastest growing distilled spirit in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. The number one input for bourbon is corn. We grow the best corn on the planet. You know, there's not a much easier math equation of two plus two equals four. Right. right? Um, what, year, what year was that? Uh, probably about 2010, 2011. Okay. okay. And at that same time frame, I was working with Jim and Jamie in the seed business. And uh, I grew up on a separate family farm about 100 miles south of Chicago. I'm fifth generation when I'm down there. Our family's been in operation since the 1860s. Mm. Um, it's a farm that's big enough that my dad needs help, but not a partner. Mm. And so, you know, I've had to go out and, and find other things to do. But I went to college at the University of Illinois after graduating from a class of 15 from my high school. <laughs> and wouldn't trade it for the world, but didn't really realize how special my my childhood was yeah and how unique the fact that i could look out and know that this was a cornfield and that was a bean field and and <laughs> how few people actually understood that yeah so you know in college i really kind of developed passion for like being a proud farmer but at the same time not being like the guy walking around in, in bib overalls you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. um after college, one of my first jobs was I traveled the country teaching ag education programs in high schools and doing promotional work at, you know, community events and things like that. And really, um, like, had this major light bulb that, like, people don't know where their food comes from. Mm. They don't have a clue. But they all have opinions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, have done a lot of work, you know, helping to kind of bridge the gap between what people think we do and what we actually do. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, working with Jim and Jamie on the seed business, they, you know, they conceived the idea, but kind of knew my background in farming, knew my background in sort of ag education and knew I like whiskey. (laughs) And, and, you know, another piece of it is I'd always wanted to to kind of own a bar. Okay. Um, That was before kids and, you know, when I was in my twenties, you know, so (laughs) two very different levels of energy you have to to add to that. It's always a good idea to start a bar. (laughs) And I had Um, drinking. You know, so when they approached me, um, it was for me, let's, you know, join this, you know, what we can now call, you know, seed to spirit organization that's about showcasing what we do on a farm, about creating something unique and about creating a platform and a place that showcases and tells a story. And, and if it's an uncomfortable conversation, well, let's, let's talk about it anyway, do it over a drink. Yeah. So, you know, we had these really cool sort of three different reasons why we got into the business and, and actually just a, a little like personal addition to this is one of my jobs out of college, I was working for a a giant multinational um, public relations firm. Hmm. And it, it was in Chicago, and one of the things we actually we did was we went to a um, thing put on by, I think it was Louisville, like come travel to Louisville, come work here, and, and Maker's Mark put on something. And okay. I can remember that moment where, like, I tried this. I'm like, this is, this is you know, I was 23 years old. Yeah. It's really good. Um, but at this company, they, they let us do, like, First Fridays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a party in the, the office on the Friday. And one of the, we, we set up something where you traveled around the world and went and hung out in people's offices, and each office had a different theme. And one of the guys, John Mose, had a th- the theme was Whiskeys of the World. Hmm. And I went in there, you know, I tasted bourbon. 
and he explained to me why it tasted the way it does and where it comes from. Yeah. And then I tasted a scotch and, you know, same explanation, but you know, different reasons. And I think there's a Canadian whiskey and an Irish whiskey. And I walked out of there like, yeah, this was fun. This what a visionary was cool. that yeah. guy is. And, and, and that was the first time I had encountered whiskey outside of, you know, Jack and Coke. Yeah. And, and so it was at that point, like we'd go out, you know, I was 23, you know, I'd order the Cuddy Sark for $4. And, and among the most embarrassing moments of my life was when I, I ordered a scotch and, you know, neat. Yeah. So I, I ordered it nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, Can you put a smiley face yeah, on that scotch? Yeah. So my wife like curls up in a ball. She's like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, yeah, I am. But, but anyway, so like, that's where it got, um, that's where it got the seed got planted, you know, pun intended, yeah. but then, you know, went to these things, you know, hosted by the city of Louisville, trying to attract us. I forgot that I had written a letter to like Diageo or Ron Foreman or something like that. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a communications professional. I have a passion in whiskey and I'd love to work for you guys. Yeah. They never responded. So I did this instead. They're lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so what's that first conversation like when Jamie calls you like, Hey, we have an idea to start a distillery from the farm. Well, it, it sort of worked like that. I actually, I had had a, a job opportunity with another company uh -huh. outside of what I was currently working on. And I had shared that with Jamie just to get his sort of, you know, impartial opinion. Mm. And so, you know, Jamie knew I was looking to do something different, uh, but it was, it was kind of a pretty significant job change for me and for the good. Uh, and I'd met with Jamie and I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to do this. And he's like, you should, it's good money. You know, I went home, talked to my wife about it. And, uh, you know, then we started looking at new cars and spending the signing bonus and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> then the next day, Jamie called me and he's like, I have an idea. Of have course. you taken the job yet? And I'm like, no, he's like, give it a day. Let's talk. So I'm finding the money already. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so we went and, you know, you talked and, you know, he's like, here's, here's the idea and here's the why, mm -hmm. you know, my dad and I have been talking about doing something like this, you know, added to the farm for some time, but we just don't have the bandwidth to do it ourselves. You know, we know you personally, we know you professionally. We'd like to have somebody on the team that can help us put together a business plan. And then when, when, and if we decide to do it, um, you know, there's a partnership opportunity there. And so, you know, I went home and talked to my wife and I was like, remember, you know, the things we're going to buy. Well, how about we start cashing out 401ks instead? And you know, <laughs> what a change of yeah, plans. Yeah. Yeah. conversation. Yeah. And, and you know, she, she looked at me and it's like, Nick, you know, you can do this and fail and have every job that you've been turning down. You could mm. want or you can do this to succeed and never work for anybody else again. And, you know, God bless her for having that sort of mentality and, and had been totally supportive of, of me yeah. from day one. That's amazing. And when I say supportive, I'm like, she goes to work and makes money. And then I take her money and pay my debts <laughs> for my <laughs> distillery startup. So not only is she like uh. emotionally and, you know, physically supportive, she's financially supportive of this, this idea of whiskey acre. So, you know, God bless you. I love you, Amanda. Happy anniversary, by the way. Yeah, Today's absolutely. our 13 year anniversary. anniversary yeah, yeah. Congratulations yeah. to that. That's amazing. You guys, so, and I can see why you want to leave early and make sure you go have a good night with her. She, <laughs> she, she, yeah. she deserves it. She does. So where were you guys were thinking? Was there a known, do you guys know the history of whiskey about farmers? They turned crops that were left over into cash by, by distilling it and turning it into whiskey. And that's a lot of how American distilling began. Did you have any idea of that before this distillery started? Sure. You know, we, I mean, the number one thing we knew is that prohibition screwed up everything, uh, yeah. right? You know, and that was basically the case. You know, there were farm distilleries were very common up till prohibition. Yep. Um, it was a much easier to head west with a barrel of whiskey that you uh, distilled from your crop than it was to head west with your crop. Right. <laughs> and and so you know we we understood and appreciated the you know some of the history behind it, uh, but to that end there was you know a whole bunch of challenges because of prohibition and because yeah. there's you know, if you look around the country find 10 
truly legitimate farm distilleries. Hmm. I, I would challenge you to do that. I don't know that there, you know, there might be 10 at this point in time. Um, so that makes it a really cool space for us to be in, but also has made it a really challenging space for us to be in is because you couldn't point down the road and say, Hey, you know, Rick did it. Yeah. And yeah, here, here's yeah. the, here's how he got licensed and here's how he worked with the County and all these things. It was, yeah. you know, we, we paved the way from day one. And I can tell you that when you tell, you know, a planning and zoning administrator, you're going to open a distillery in the middle of a cornfield. They don't exactly go, well, that's a great idea. How can we help? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's more challenges and roadblocks put up than you could ever, ever imagine. Did the distillation laws that were getting changed in Chicago make their way out here? Or is so it more it, state or it more was, local? It was state level. Okay. So that, that also is what was coinciding is, is I think pre-2011, yeah. maybe, I think that state limits on a craft distillery were 5,000 gallons a year. So, you know, that's, that's a lot if yeah. you, you know, have a an expensive hobby, but it's not enough to scale a business. Exactly. Somewhere in that 2011, 2012 timeframe is when it changed from five to 15. All right. Still not much, but if you can, you know, using round numbers, starting point. using round numbers, 15,000 gallons is about 75,000 bottles. Yeah. If you can make and subsequently sell that, if you manage your, your numbers the right way, it's a viable business. Um, then they, they change it from 15 to 30. And, and today, depending on the license you carry in the state, you either have a 50 or 100,000 gallon right. max of annual production within the state. So absolutely, the state level laws were were integral in, in allowing us to, or you know, enabling us to do it because pre you know 2011, you, you couldn't scale a business to have it successful. Sorry, there's we'll, something we'll jumped from a tree out there. Yeah. I, it's kind of like a bobcat, but we don't have bobcats out here. Oh, darn. <laughs> Ian, can you go investigate that, please? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so back, this is about, what, 2013, 2014, you guys were thinking this? So we incorporated in the 13. Okay. That was after spending the better part of a year putting a plan together. So yeah. I think initial conversations happened in 11. Um, the rubber met the road in 12. And then in 13, um, we were able to get a hold of you know, our, our rest, rest in peace, you know, Dave Pickerel, our friend too, yeah. and kind of show him our, our plan, get some validation on it. And in so many words, he's like, I've been wanting distilleries to do this for ages. I was wondering, like, that's, that's the first question. Yeah. Like, when does he come into play with all of this? Well, it, you know, Dave is, if you knew Dave, you were, you were blessed to, you know, be next to a fountain of knowledge mm -hmm. and among the nicest human beings ever but also one of the most elusive human beings. <laughs> uh, it took us two months, four months, something like that to, to get a hold of them. And once we did, you know, we explained to him, okay, everyone's starting a craft distillery, right? That's yeah. why everyone reaches out to Dave Pickerel. And that's why he ignores phone calls. He's like, I have so much time in my day. And, you know, just because you're a retired lawyer and don't want to go to do the, the hustle and bustle anymore doesn't mean that I want to work with you. You know, for us... It, we do actually do have a, Jamie refers to himself as a recovering attorney, uh, which is, you know, back to the, the local planning and zoning stuff was absolutely integral in, in making us, you know, helping us move forward. But um, we're a farm hmm. and that's the complete and total foundation of what we're doing here. It was, you know, the seed to spirit model of we believed at the time, we believed that different types of corn, different varietals of corn, different um, variations of yellow dent corn would influence the final flavor of whiskey, much like variations of wine of grapes would would affect the flavor of wine, and that was our you know, sort of our, our hypothesis of we're going to do this. We're going to let the farm drive the flavor. Hmm. And Dave's like, "This is fun. This is what I want to do." And you know, at the time, I think he was working with Whistlepig, mm -hmm. um, and they were sort of laying out the groundwork to do it. 
but at the same time, they're buying whiskey from Canada. Right. You know, kudos to them for having a very successful yeah. launch. But for us, that was the absolute last thing we were going to do is that we, we made the commitment that we were not going to source whiskey. Mm. So we knew that it was going to take a long time to, to be in the black. Yeah, yeah. Right? But it was going to give us total transparency or give our customers total transparency, give us total control, and we were going to learn everything we needed to. Yeah, and the so, landscape for itself, too. Yep. And so, so Dave's like, this is what we're, you know, I will work with you guys because I want to be part of this. Why did you think your corn would stand out? So there, there's a few, few things. I mean, one, you know, go back to, to Jim. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that, the way this farm is operated is it's highly managed and highly repeatable, and there's just great output coming from it. Uh, geography, you know, DeKalb, hybrid seed corn was invented here, mm-hmm. right? It is, it is like the Napa Valley of corn. You know, if you were to talk to an agronomist and say, you know, what conditions do you need to grow good grain, uh, it would be basically right, right here. Um, and then, you know, the, we'll call just high-quality grain as, uh, as table stakes, the bigger piece of it was having the willingness and the ability to identify to preserve it. Mm. You know, so instead of looking at and go, well, here's my field of corn, you look at it and go, here's my field of variety A, and here's a field of variety B, and here's a field of variety C. And I'm going to harvest that. I'm going to store it and clean it and mill it separately. We're going to make whiskey from it in different, you know, different batches with different varieties to truly be able to showcase what those are. Mm. And um, that was our hunch. And, you know, you met Rob earlier, Rob, our master distiller, Rob Wallace. Um, wrote a thesis on it, you know, has master's thesis published on how varietals of corn affect the flavor of whiskey. So it's gone from a hunch to this is how it works. Hmm. And, and it's the foundation of everything we do. What he discovered kind of on, you know, the synopsis of that, the cliff well, note version. A lot of corn's the same. Okay. <laughs> but if you, if you know your genetic background, you can really highlight the, the differences. Um, so, you know, if you, if you just look at a commercial seed bag, you know, there's diversity in it. Yeah. Uh, but, a lot of it comes from the same parent lineage. When you're making a farming decision and you're buying your seed, you're making that decision off of which variety of seed you think is going to grow the most bushels per acre. Mm-hmm. Because you make your living as a farmer by growing the most bushels per acre and attempting to sell them at the highest market price possible. You know, there's some other complexities to go into it, but it's like grow corn, sell corn. That's, right. how, that's how you make your living. Um, and so when you're making those decisions, the growing corn is you want to make the biggest pile that weighs the most. Mm. When you're distilling, you can look at your seed choices very differently because it's not about quantity. It can become about quality. And so uh, because we know we're going to value add that grain to to and through the distillery, Hmm. we can start making planting decisions that are less about volume and and tonnage and more about which is going to have better natural dry down, which is going to have better disease resistance, um, which is going to have higher test weight. Uh, all those sort of little things that you don't get paid for as a commodity producer, uh, you can showcase in a distillate. And if you have the, if you take the time and, the, and the, create the process of preserving them, you can then pick them individually to make decisions on what you should do next year. Mm-hmm. And so we've actually narrowed it down to three very specific varieties of yellow dent corn that we grow year in and year out. And then I've got a whole other story about other things we're doing. <laughs> well, we can share that story too. Um, was it always those three varieties or was it more no. about, just was it quality over quantity right right from the beginning of the foundation or was it like, let's mix some whiskey and see what happens? Well, I, I think Ian made the comment earlier of, of it was throw it a wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where we kind of started. You know, we, we had some hunches. We had some intuition. Um, you know, Jamie uh, tells the story that he makes tea out of corn. It's the world's worst tasting tea. Uh, but... <laughs> 
That's Interesting. a fancier way of saying he, he grinds up grain and makes a mash out of it and sees what those individual mashes taste like. Yeah. And there's just some nuances and some, some unique attributes that come out of that that you can then, you know, if, if the mash tastes better, the whiskey should taste better in, in theory. So, yeah. um, so that helped to sort of narrow down, you know, we literally have access to hundreds of different, thousands of different seed choices, mm. you know, different suppliers. You know, I open a seed catalog. I still have a seed business. I open a seed catalog. If you're a, a cus- potential customer of mine, I'd, I'd have 30 or 40 different choices from my brand Perfect. alone. I have, I have about a, two feet in my backyard, to, <laughs> my back porch to grow some stuff. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's 20 different seed brands in the neighborhood too. So, you know, the choices that we have, the options that we have are, are almost infinite and they mm. change from one year to the next. So we're looking at what, what's a reliable um, supplier that we can have and what, what's, what's consistent from a, an out, a distal output standpoint. I know Rob wasn't around and his thesis wasn't around when you guys first started, but does a varietal of corns make up for flaws in distilling? I would look at it differently in that varietals of corn enhance distilling success. I like that. Um, because if you, you know, when we walked through the distillery, you saw in there that there was, there's not a damn thing in there that's automated. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, we could have bought a fully automated turnkey place where you push a button, you walk away and you come back eight hours later and you got whiskey. Yep. Um, that's not how we wanted to operate this place. We wanted it to be hands-on. We wanted it to be the flavor of the people, the flavor of the place. And so I don't want to tell you that we don't make mistakes, but you know, I, I did the distilling here for the first couple of years, did it long enough that I was able to train Rob and be in a position that if, if a mistake happened, you're not necessarily it's a distillation mistake, but a valve goes out, uh, an alarm goes off that Rob could call me if I was off site and I could sort of close my eyes and walk him through where to fix something. Yeah. Um, so things happen when distilling, but we have tight enough stand- standard operating procedures that uh, there are not many mistakes that make it to a barrel. Okay. That's the way, you know, things happen, but it doesn't happen very often. And we've, when, if they're too big of a mistake, it's gone. Yeah. We, we, we will not risk the long-term integrity of our brand and our product by squinting through a mistake mm. and, and blending it off. So in the very beginning, when you had these corn varietals and you're working with Dave, how did he teach you about beginning a distillery and building this up and speaking, you're really speaking to the terroir directly from the terroir to what you're doing with your seed to glass approach. Well, we taught Dave a lot about grain. I was you wondering know? about that. Yeah, how yeah. much did he know about like the, so yeah, we knew about the grain and Dave taught us how to turn it into whiskey. Okay. Is the best way to, to think of it. Taught each other, I guess. There was a lot of that. And so, I mean, it was basically Dave Pickerel Boot Camp. Mm. Um, we, we got our equipment, and then he came out, you know, for a week or so in June and helped us to, you know, erect or set it up, right? <laughs> Which was just an awesome, awesome experience. And then um, it was at that point we were waiting on uh, TTB to, to give us our license. And, and actually... I think today, what's today? August 22nd is, yeah. is the end of my wedding anniversary and our TTB anniversary. Uh, so in 2014. So, oh, right. Uh, so we're, yeah. That's why we should. Yeah. yeah, we did. Actually, actually, I'd forgotten we were, about that. We've been pushing it for <laughs> months because of this day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it would be August 22nd, I believe, of 2014. We got mm-hmm. our, our TTB license. That's awesome. And then the moment you get your TTB license, you then have to apply to the state. Mm-hmm. And, and it's basically the exact same process, except you send the state a check 
and then at some point, you know, they process it all and then they come out and they will look around and go, well, yep, they're going to start a distillery and, uh, they cash your check and give you a license. Hmm. And that turned out that I think all that happened somewhere around like the first week of December. Hmm. And so then we were able, you know, Dave sort of, we had Dave on standby, uh, to get out here. And, and I think we'll call it mid December, he came out for another week. Hmm. And you know, I, when I say Dave Pickle Boot Camp, I mean Dave Pickle Boot Camp. You know, we're out here at six o'clock in the morning, and you know we we're testing everything. Well, let's make sure that this mash ton works and the cooling systems go. And, you know, there's I don't know the number, but we'll call it two hundred valves in there. Mm-hmm. You know that you got to know if you turn it left or right or up or down. And um, so we're doing this, and, and as we're doing it, we're putting a standard operating procedure together. And on day one, he's like, guys, I think this is working. Uh, let's rip a mash out. And so, hell yeah, right? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so, so we did and then found out that everything was working except for the thermometer in our mash cooker. <laughs> so we're turning it on and we're trying to get it to boil and it's 180, it's 181, it's 182. You know, I'm like, Dave, how long does this take? Well, you know, you got to get used to your system and, um, you know, just have some patience and an hour goes by and two hours goes by. And the next thing I know, there is mash dripping from the ceiling because we'd been boiling it for the better part of two hours. It had been 212 degrees, but the thermometer was reading 182. Yeah. <laughs> so that one didn't go well. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so we cleaned it up and started over. And I think that kudos to Vendome, they literally overnighted us a, uh, a thermometer. Nice. Installed that thing the next day and, and uh, went at it again. And on that, I guess, day number two, we, we use one thing you didn't see when there is we we use a seed box and basically a spout that comes out of the seed box to transfer the grain from from the box into the cooker mm-hmm. and uh, so that allows us to do all of our cleaning and milling in a different room so we don't get the distillery all dusty uh, it also the way that grain comes out of it uh, it comes at such velocity that it almost self integrates into the mash so really? you don't you would get clumps and it's just a much cooler cleaner process on day two, I can remember looking, or I get the Facebook memory every once in a while of, of Dave posts the fastest mash in I've ever done hmm. in his in you know history of hmm. of uh, distilling consulting, and that was day two for us. Wow. So you know, add four days from that, uh, you know, it's probably a Friday or a Saturday or something. It's time to learn to distill, and uh, he, he's you know, Nick, here's what you're tasting for turn this valve this way and turn about that valve that way. And if this goes wrong, do this. And if this goes right, repeat it. And you know, you want to talk about drinking from a fire hose. You know, I think, I think the standard operating procedures that we put together were like five pages long. And, and then it was, all right, well let's distill and mash at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, we're running it. And I can remember we, we built this in a way that we, th- we can run two shifts, okay. you know, you do a morning shift and an evening shift. And on the first time we were distilling, the first batch took 16 hours. So we went from this like record of, of mash in to like the world's longest distillation. And, you know, we, we're finding out we had some issues with like a steam trap or something. And, you know, yeah. things happen. But Jamie and I are going, it's not possible if, to do two distillations in a day with 24 hours in a day in a 16 hour distillation. And you know, that, you know, yeah. that's where we're starting to have like, you know, doubts, yeah. doubts, regrets, fear, you know, but we worked through it. And then, it was New Year's Day of 2015. Uh, I came out with with my wife, and instead of you know being out 
to all hours the night before. We were here at six in the morning to do a double mash and, and to get things rocking. And, and we've pretty much been rocking ever since. And, and you know, Dave was, was always on speed dial of how do I fix this or how do I repeat what went well? Hmm. And, and, you know, he was, he wouldn't call him that often, but he was a great resource to have to, to validate what we think we were seeing. Sure. Did he ever call you guys about grain? Yeah. 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 You know, he, he was looking, looking into some, some grain things. Uh, he really liked their barrel warehouses that, mm. that are old, old grain bins. Yeah. And, and I, I think he was looking into doing those with some, some other distilleries he was looking into. Yeah. We had lots of conversations with him about grain and, and uh, one of the, the most fun ones I had with him was I was on the phone with him in the spring of 2014, spring of 2015, I should say. And, uh, it was one of those, Dave, what did I do right? What did I do wrong conversations? <laughs> and a friend of mine who's a popcorn farmer over in Western Illinois calls. And, you know, I look and see who it is. I'm like, I'll take this later. But then I have the light bulb. I said, Dave, how do you make bourbon from popcorn? And he just starts laughing. He says, I have no idea. It's never been done before. So huh. Dave and I wrapped up our phone call. I called my buddy Andy and I said, hey, can you get me popcorn seed? Because this is like April 1st or April 15th or something like that. So we still have an opportunity to plant the crop. And Andy pauses. And I'm like, I'm not going to be your competition. I want to make whiskey from it. And so we got it a week later. We planted it. And we planted enough to make a barrel of whiskey. And, you know, first was learn how to grow popcorn. Mm-hmm. You grow manage popcorn very differently than yellow dent corn. And we did that. And then we harvested it and made a barrel of whiskey out of it. And the moment that came out the still, it was like, we got something special here. So year one, I think we did one barrel. Year four, we did four. Or I should say year two, we did four barrels. And we've just, we've been scaling it ever since. And this year, it represent nearly 20% of our, our distillation. Wow. wow, really? Yeah. Jeez. You know, so so we, we, we started with, let's figure out the best varieties of yellow dent corn that we can possibly use to go in our standard products. Mm. And then let's figure out how we can have extensions of those through using completely, you know, off the reservation varietals of corn, whether it's popcorn or, you know, we use an heirloom varietal out of Oaxaca, Mexico. Uh, we, we grow a, um, we grow bloody butcher and we're not the only ones who do that, but we're one of the few distilleries who actually grows it and then distills it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a glass gem popcorn. It's an ornamental popcorn. Ears are like this big, hmm. total pain in the ass to harvest, yeah. but makes just an unbelievable whiskey. Uh, you, Earlier you talked about mistakes. This isn't wasn't a mistake, but we grew sweet corn and let it dry down, harvested it, and made a couple batches of whiskey from it. Hmm. Not a mistake from a product standpoint, but a mistake from it makes no sense to make whiskey from sweet corn. Why is that? Because you have to have starch. Like starch is what you use to you know to create sugar. When sweet corn dries down, it's just it's there's Riddle. nothing there. Yeah, there's like almost literally nothing there. It takes so much to do. Um, you know, we, we did a release a couple weeks ago I, I think we sold it for 60 or 70 bucks. Somebody was telling me there's there, I think one other distillery in Indiana that might be doing it that sells it for 150 to $300 a bottle. And that's the only way that we could actually sell it to, to, to make it like profitable for the business. But that's not a price point we like to operate. Yeah. At. How many bottles did it yield? Not enough. Not enough. I, 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 <laughs> I don't remember the specifics, but there's a reason, there's a reason why there's no more of it. Right. Right. Uh, so how did you choose which grains to start working with? And then, like we were talking earlier, you aren't buying, you know, seed, you're buying seeds to be planted here and to grow yourself and be a, a true representation of this area of Illinois and this area of the country, which I've always, which attracted me to the brand right away when I've heard, oh, like they're doing everything out on site. Not really sure what that means because back then, let's say this is like 20 17 2018 everyone's like oh grain and glass or we're like we're local we use local grains like well what does that mean how local are you where are you getting that but literally you're 
a football throw away from your greens. Yeah. So, you know, nice. it, it starts with what's nobody else doing? Mm. And, and honestly, that gives you a pretty big platform to work from. Yeah. Because you know? there's, there's not a whole lot of innovation that's going on the, the grain supply side of things as it relates to the distillery. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of distilleries popping up back then in 2013, 2014, even earlier than that. But how are they separating themselves from one right. another, especially when they're using like the same machines, they're using the same techniques. Yep. So, so you know, when it comes to what, what grain are we going to use, what corn varieties are we going to use? So, you know, regarding the yellow dent, we use our farmer intuition. We use our, our seed uh, business sort of foundational knowledge to make those decisions. And then we're looking at our artisan series. Um, you know, again, you have to use some, some farmer common sense to know that for the most part, um, the, the corn that you would be able to grow here for commercial use is you can't go too far astray from that. Like the corn that's meant to grow in Texas, yeah, uh, you know, needs such a longer growing season. It's just acclimated to different growing conditions that you can't often successfully do it here. For instance, the first year we grew Oaxacan green corn, mm -hmm. developed in the Oaxacan region of Mexico. We treated it just like our other corn. And it honestly was the fastest out of the ground, the most beautiful plants, uh, tall, leafy green till October or till August 1st hit. And then all of the, the leaf diseases that exist in our a little bit more humid climate here yeah. took over. And because it's an heirloom variety, it has no genetic resistance to it whatsoever. And, you know, it basically, it, it prematurely died. We were able to harvest a crop, but it wasn't the highest quality grain that we were after. And so we've always said, you know, it's all about grain quality. Hmm. So, but we still made whiskey from it to showcase the nuances from it. By the way, this Oaxacan green, it distills like a rye whiskey. Oh. Yeah, it's that, it's this, this corn chip, spicy, just totally unique um, flavor profile. Does it take as long <laughs> to mash yeah. it up and everything? Yeah, you know, if just from a, how long does it take to make whiskey, you know, to go from grain to clear spirit? Yeah. There's not a whole lot of variability from, okay. from one. There's really no variability from one to, you know, maybe, maybe an extra day or, or two based off of the ferment. Yeah. You know, and that's going to be driven by the, um, the starch that's in there as well as the, the yeast we're using. But we, we kind of said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not going to do this Oaxacan grain anymore because it's not, not the highest quality grain. But honestly, you know, we listen to our customers and they're begging, begging for more of this. So we adapted our approach of instead of treating it like the normal yellow dent, you know, high genetic diversity, good disease tolerance, we treated it like an, an heirloom variety and treated it for those, those um, leaf diseases and, and managed it, you know, highly managed it more to subsequently get us like a very nice clean crop. Mm. We did that for the first time, you know, redid it, I guess, in 2020. Uh, we're doing it again this year so that, you know, the tail on this dog is five years, right? Yeah. right? You know, or, or longer, depending on where we start. So um, in a few ways, we've had to approach the way we farm a little bit differently, mm. but we still, you know, it's all about sustainability. It's all about, you know, integrating other crops as rotational crops to uh, break up disease cycles and to, you know, replenish nutrients. And, uh, but, but sometimes you have to overmanage those heirloom things relative to, to what mm. we normally grow here. Hmm. Go ahead. Uh, well, we're fortunate enough to be able to try a work in progress right now, actually. Um, Which doesn't involve, it's not, a, you know, bourbon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, uh, Different grain we're working on. Yeah, this is uh, the this is your bloody butcher. Yep. Um, so this actually is bourbon. Oh, it is? Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's just, it, this it's is just in a rye. Oh, 
Okay. This is Wild a uh, yeah. It's this is Rob Scrap bottle. Gotcha. So it's in a rye glass. It's in a rye bottle. <laughs> yes. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. yeah this is. Uh, wow. I'm I'm looking forward to this coming out. What series is this part of? So this will be part of our artisan series. Okay. Um, we'll we'll release this mid October ahead of Halloween. So it's Bloody Butcher is the open pollinated heirloom varietal of grain that we're using here. Bloody Butcher is these dark blood red kernels of corn that, that we harvest. This is uh, four and five year old barrels, and you know what we're tasting right now is we don't pick a proof based off of profitability. We pick a proof based off of what Rob's palate tells us that the best best expresses. So Rob has, you know, there's probably a handful of other bottles out there, but this one's at 95 proof. Okay. So he, he works, you know, works it down from 120s barrel proof. And sometimes that's where it needs to be released, but go down, go down, go down to see whether things show up in the, in the distillate. Mm -hmm. And, um, I th he mentioned to us this one's at 95. He thinks it might need to be just a little bit hotter, you know, mm. somewhere maybe 97 or 98 for bottling. So he's he's going to get me the final proof on it. Then I can get these things sent to print, and, and we'll have them bottled in October to, to hit the shelves. Awesome. It's it's, uh, it's in a good place right now. I'll put I, it that oh, way. Yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate I appreciate the care that's put into that decision. Um, you know, it's there's so many out there that just and there 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 are sweet spots, but. The fact that, um, you know, Rob's looking at this from bottling to bottling, from distillate to distillate, right. not just, well, this is our, this is our house proof. Um, that's, that's amazing. And this, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to ruin it for all the listeners, but you know, the, uh, it's, it's super buttery. It's just got that buttery backbone yeah. that just delivers all the, the great corn flavors and that like what I consider the house whiskey acres minerality um, mm. there's like there's a minerality in there that the more people I talk to who are like being turned on to whiskey acres the more it's 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 described in different ways by different people because I mean everyone's palates are different everyone's schema and backgrounds different but <clears throat> I think that to me it's it's a minerality that does really speak to terroir mm. more than a lot of other things and I don't know if it's you know, based on the water from, you know, our, our aquifer that is, you know, under our area that's, you know, really, I guess, sought after mm. water source. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a vein that goes through all the products. And I think that it adds something that you just can't get with, with a lot of other products. I always think about that too, how, you know, this part of the country in Illinois, Iowa, wherever you might be in the Midwest, how there isn't more distilleries out there when you're producing, mm -hmm. you have some of the best soil in the world to work with. You obviously have great crops, people who care about it. Generations have been doing it for now for, you know, going into hundreds of years. Like why isn't there more farmers, not just farm distilleries, but distilleries in general taking advantage of the agriculture? Because people don't have wives who are supportive of this. That's it. Idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's really, you know, I say that in jest, but it, I'm also serious. And, yeah. you know, you start a distillery, if you're going to do it from seed to spirit as opposed to source, you know, you're, you're five years in before you even know what in the world you've actually got. <laughs> yeah. You Did know, you wait four years to sell anything? So we, on year one, we filled 15, 25, and 53 gallon barrels. Okay. Year two, we filled 25s and 53s. And year three and beyond, we've only filled 53s. So then we got to year three, we had just a little bit of yeah. two year 15s. It's a very ambitious approach. Got to year three, yeah. we had just a little bit of 25s. And we got to year four, 
we had a little bit of 25s and started to get into 53s, you know, mm-hmm. and, and now we're, we, we have a few like experimental things. Yeah. Uh, but, but we are, we are full bore, 53 gallon, no less than four years. And I'll, I'll I, I've got an answer to the why of, of that, the whiskey acres flavor. And it's not just one answer. You hit on water and, and that's a big piece of it. Yeah. Back to Dave. When you run a distillery, you use a whole bunch of water, mm-hmm. like thousands of gallons. And uh, we're sitting on top of like the original farm well that was put in here in the awesome. 1930s. And that farm well cannot sustain the pump and dump method of, of cooling that, that like most, most distilleries in a municipal you know, zip code would do, where you know, they bring it in from the well, you know, the city well or the, the lake and pump it right back down. So we were looking into like, literally digging a new well here to go you know, deeper in the water table to get us essentially a municipal sized water supply. Hmm. And Dave said, before you do that, let's just, let's test your water and see what we're working with here. And I can remember him opening that envelope and just chuckling. And he says, boys, we're not doing anything to your well. <laughs> your water quality is chemically identical to what they use in Bardstown, Kentucky. Really? Okay. So, you know, if anybody goes on a Kentucky distillery tour, tri- uh, tour, yeah. water, it's water, it's water, it's water, it's water, right? And, and limestone. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, we pivoted, uh, you know, the marketing department quit calling it a farm well and started calling it a limestone aquifer because I mean, that's exactly what it is. Mm. Um, but number two is we, we essentially reconfigured the way this distillery was built. So instead of pumping and dumping water from an essentially an unlimited water supply, we built it in a way that we recycle, reclaim and recirculate virtually every gallon of water that we use. So, um, you know, I won't get into this, like all the details yeah. on it, but the, in doing that, uh, we had to, put a lot more pumps in a lot more reservoir tanks and, and subsequently started using a lot more electricity mm-hmm. to reduce our water consumption. So our, our electricity consumption spiked. And if you look over your right shoulder, you'll see a solar panel system out there that completely offsets all the electricity we use that we need to save the water. So it's this really cool system we put in place. It's very, you know, symbiotic yeah. um, and, and, and utilizes you know, again, recirculating, recycling, and reclaiming. Was the sustainability part of the ethos of the company originally on? So it was, but not in the way that most people would think. Okay. Sustainability is just the way we have always done business as farmers. I was farmers. gonna say, as a master so, farmer, you probably... So what, what we learned to do is talk about it yeah. as opposed to just do it. So all these things, you know, that we're talking about, we, we've in some form or fashion done on, you know, whether it's the Walter farm or my family's farm because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. We didn't have a word for it. Yeah, you know. So now, as as guys who now have to seek out, you know, public approval, and and as opposed to selling commodity, we're selling a final product here. We've we've learned to you know create some talking points and mm. really showcase what we're proud of. But we've just been doing you know for generations. Right, you're speaking to the place once again yeah. just through all of that. Yeah. So so water is is one of them. Um, it's it's the selection of grain. We we don't want that corn to be buried. You know, so we we pick varietals of corn that have a more expressive grain flavor. It's the yeast strain that we use. It's the fact that we distill on the grain, so you're able to extract more grain flavor out. And it's the age. So we're bottling four to six-year-old whiskey. We've oxidized it. You know, we've, we've had all that happen. We've had several seasons of additive and subtractive aging where, you know, that whiskey's going through that char and mm-hmm. pulling out the stuff we don't want. But it's also going in there deep enough that it's getting us lots of wood sugars. And it's getting us that whiskey acres flavor. You know, one of the easiest things to sell in the whiskey business is age, right? You know, the implication is nine is bigger than seven. 
So nine is better than seven. Yeah. Right. There's a point where if you leave the whiskey in the barrel for a certain amount of time, you start to showcase the barrel way mm-hmm. more than you yes. start to showcase Absolutely. the distillate. So we believe that that four to six year range is a place where we check all the necessary boxes to have everything needed to happen in that barrel. And it showcases what we put in the first place. Mm. And so it's, it's really, it's a matter of retraining the way customers think about it because most are just used to drinking, drinking wood, yeah. you know, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah. And, and what we're doing is showcasing the hard work that Rob put into it. That's complemented by the hard work that Cooper's put into it, mm. as opposed to covered up by the work that Cooper puts into it. How do you communicate that to customers? Because it is so important, especially as a small distillery, like you're competing with now thousands of brands out yeah. there. But when, when you guys first started, there was less than a thousand yeah. brands. So uh, when somebody calls and says, you want to be on Keenan Lake podcast, you say yes. No, uh, don't ever do that. <laughs> For any future distillers out there listening, um, don't do that. It's Honestly, it's one of the biggest challenges we have. Yeah, you I know, hear you. It absolutely is. So, you know, you've got to work with, uh, you know, your distribution sales team. Mm. Uh, you know, you're in our, you know, I'm, I'm going to be self-serving here and call this our beautiful visitor center. Yeah. We have hundreds of people come through on a weekend and we talk about that story. We use this as a place as like ground zero of our marketing department. Of, of telling the story of showcasing the flavors and helping people understand the why. Okay. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle, <laughs> but you know, I think to, to Ian's point, we, we have, we have a unique flavor and, and people are looking for something that's special. You know, if you, if people wanted MGP whiskey, they'd never reach for our bottle. You know? Yeah. And I'd like to actually, I, I just, I just want to go back to this <laughs> because <laughs> please, please, there's please. a lot going on in here. Yeah. Like this is, I, I can't get it, get off this because aside from like, you know, that, that nice buttery backbone, that's like a, just a nice delivery system for everything. It's got these hyper floral yeah. top notes and like, a, like a, like a citrus, like a lemon zest too. Mm-hmm. It almost reminds me of like Daft Mill. And I, I know not a lot of people have had that, but it's a it's super tiny distillery in, uh, in Scotland, malt distillery. I was going to say there is like a single malt quality that it, knows and invites you in on here. Absolutely. And it's like, it's like that that very springy, like early spring sort of vibe that you get from the uh, Daft Mill releases, and it is just this is a this is killer, man. This is one of the best things that I've tried. <laughs> even, and I, you know, there's you you guys obviously have some phenomenal products. I'm, you know, a super fanboy of the uh, Bottle and Bond Rye, but this like some of these artisan ones that you guys are doing nice. are just killer. <laughs> is this what you do? I saw him do this earlier. It's, there all, you it's go. always there you good go. to get the pop on the mic. That is for sure. The best sound in the podcast, <laughs> not us. Um, no, I can highly relate to you, though, about how difficult it is to sell this place, not just the whiskey inside the bottle, but this entire place. Like selling an Australian whiskey um, that represents its place, it's totally important to communicate to customers about why this bottle is unique and different. And that is one of the biggest questions I had in my mind coming here before coming here was, why should whiskey represent its place? If you want to answer that. Say the question again. Why should whiskey represent its place? And where it comes from? Well, I mean, obviously it doesn't have to because most, most don't. Right. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you look at the chaos that's happened in you know, the last two years, uh, you know, in every aspect of our lives, I think that the most important thing that we've, we realize is how important it is to support your backyard. Right. Right. And so, you know, whether that's, you know, buying a side of beef from a farmer or, uh, you know, 
having a local glass supplier, you know, supply chain issues become mitigated yeah. if you have a relationship <laughs> with the people who are supplying you. And, and so, you know, just out the gate, I think it's important, you know, if, if folks want to support something that they can rely on, mm. you know, spend your dollar, you know, in your zip code or close to your zip code. But, you know, to, to build on that, um, it, it matters, you know, what, because we truly are showcasing like what's what we grow and you know, the, the idea of terroir is applicable in every drop that goes into a bottle here. Uh, it's common sense in the wine world. You know, why, why do people like estate vineyards? Mm. Because they, they taste the flavor that is nuanced to that specific geography. Right. You know, again, it, I, I said I said it earlier. Two plus two equals four. Why not apply that to whiskey? Yeah. And and the reason the most haven't is they weren't blessed with the access to the farm. <laughs> they weren't blessed yeah. with the access to a wife who's willing or wives <laughs> willing to support the concept of, of building it on a farm. And, right. And so, um, I guess my my question is almost reverse of why not? You know, the yeah. reason why not is because there's been so many bureaucratic hurdles in the way. The the cost of doing it is is astronomical the right. patience required to actually conceive it and get it to a bottle is you know i'm insane you know yeah. there's there's no reason <laughs> to do this you know uh but but the payoff is fantastic yeah. you know the, there's so much joy that i derive from like that look that you just made on your face when you tasted that that bib rye pretty pretty good you know that's <laughs> that's why we wake up in the morning and do what we do yeah. and and the the fun part of it is is being the guys out there telling that story and mm -hmm. showcasing it as opposed to, you know, we're only distributed in Illinois too. Right. And that's on purpose. You know, we, we want to own our backyard. We want to have access to our customers. I think that's so smart. And it's yeah. such a different selling experience of, of, of being, you know, part of that team as opposed to putting on a pallet and shipping it to Texas and hoping some stranger I've never met is able to tell us to tell our story. Hey, I'm doing that tomorrow in Texas. <laughs> Quite literally. I'm yeah. literally going to Texas to do that tomorrow. No, and I hear you on that. It's, it's so difficult. And it goes right into well, the next question I had for you was how important it w was it for you guys to have a bottle in bond and how do you feel when you finally got to put that out there? Because personally, when I heard that you guys were putting a bottle in bond out, I thought it was a big historic moment for distilleries in Illinois. It was absolutely important. It got us to a point where we can sell what I like to call no excuse craft whiskey. Like that. You know, you just call it that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there are peers in the industry who have had bottled and bond releases. Mm -hmm. They're often single barrels and, yep. you know, one offs that, that, you know, might have a little release. For us, it was totally symbolic of the planning that we did years ago to get to this point um, that. You know, there, there are better bottle and bond products than others, but I don't know that there are any bad bottle and bond products out there. Mm. And so for a consumer to see a craft distillery or there are very few about it, you know, but sorry. Yeah. There's, I've, I've <laughs> had, I've had some source. I've had okay, some source okay. that I think the blender, I, I don't, I don't know who was blending it. Probably the money guy. Yep. And it just didn't work, but yeah, no, but, I get you know, a bottle and bond product is a far more reliable reach yeah. than really anything else out there. Yeah. And so for us, it was about getting to a point that we could put our flag in the sand and say, we've, we've waited, we've proven it now. Enjoy it. Well, I think that's the line of demarcation that you, you are then an established distillery. Yeah. And you know, I think that's a good, that's a good marker right there. And years back, I mean, 
I, I remember coming out, um, you know, you were gracious enough to have me out and show me around years back and we were sitting out back and, you know, we were tasting things and you said, Hey, this is, I've got something that's coming out soon. Hmm. Went in, came out with a bottle of bottled and bond bourbon before it was out. And that was a huge eye opening moment for me because that was, it, it just showed what you, the trajectory that you guys were on. And that was backed up, you know, when you, when you guys sent it off to San Francisco world spirits competition, which it got double gold there along with your bottle and bond rye, your, uh, maple syrup cask. And then was that, was it those three? And then those you got gold for blue popcorn. popcorn. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I've got a question kind of aimed at both you guys. Oh no. Um, has in I the last questions on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> well, both the, uh, distilleries you represent have in the last two years, you know, done very well at the San Francisco world spirits competition, you know, highly regarded as the spirits competition. Um, have you, what have you seen? Like, have you seen a, a boost from that? Has it, uh, has it affected your perception, the perception from outside, the perception from other people, the perception from yourselves is almost like a, you know, I guess a pat on the back saying you're, you're doing this right. Like this is, you guys are on the right track. I'll just speak to it. And then I, there's nothing better than third party validation. Mm. You know, so you, you can walk into, you know, go to a, a big tasting and, I can point to the double gold sticker on my, my bottle that someone gave me that yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't pay for, you know, that, that in itself, you know, allows you to kind of walk with your chin up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, I can communicate that, that I didn't, you know, this is not marketing here. This mm, is, yeah. this is a whole bunch of really well-versed whiskey drinkers unanimously telling me I've got something good. After eight years of working on <laughs> yes, it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that in itself, is, and, and also it, that carries over to our staff too. You know, we've got a wonderful team out here who's, who's you know, giving tours and tastings and cocktails at the visitor center. You know, it, it's, I think a lot easier for them to walk around here and, and sell things and tell the story based off of knowing about this third party validation. I would say from a timing standpoint, if I could have won a double gold, in 2018 or 2019, yeah. <laughs> not in the middle of a global pandemic and able to subsequently, you know, do all of the marketing events that we would normally do around it. Yeah. It could have been better timed, uh, you know, but the other piece of it is, is, you know, we're seeing lots of growth. Um, a lot of it, a portion of it can be attributed to the awards that we're winning, but a lot of it is just time and market. Yeah. You know, when you start from zero, <laughs> you know, you, you, you need to have that growth every year, but, you know, I guess, look, maybe the most like clear thing to me is our Facebook. We've got, we've got a counter in there of how many Facebook likes we have. Mm. We're either at or just above 20,000 Nice unpaid likes. You know, yeah. that's, that's a lot, but it's not that much. I can remember how excited I was to have 1000 likes yeah. and 2000 and 5,000, you know, so it's, you've got an engine here of, and, and so those are people who've taken the action to push a button, but there's 20,000 people out there who now know about us and likely are telling somebody about us mm. as opposed to 2,000. Well, and I think like the mirror aspect that you're talking about, like the people around here being able, the people at the distillery being able to, uh, um, you know, take an extra pride in, in what they're doing. And I mean, you know, from Rob's standpoint, that has to give him a little extra confidence when he is experimenting, when he's pulling mm. a different grain 
you know, running a brand new mash bill with something he's never mm-hmm. done before thinking, look, like I, I know what I'm doing. You know, I mean, not that he didn't know, but that, that kind of, uh, affirmation on that level, on that stage, on the world stage yeah. that has to allow, I thought it was really cool. Cause I'm like, well, now they're going to keep experimenting. Now they're mm. going to keep pushing the envelope. And when they do that, like special things happen like this, you know, the one that we're trying right now. But yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's something that you often don't think about yeah. is not just the, the consumer perspective, but the people who are actually doing the work at the distillery and, and you know, uh, offering them kind of the creative license to continue that and try and push the envelope. It puts more trust into that customer and what they're tasting from that bottle. Yeah. And like, oh, I like this. Like, oh, you should be liking this. A lot of people like this whiskey. And like you said, both all three of us said this is validation. For me, it was validation more for uh, our founder and the first person you ever hired, who's our head distiller, still 15 years later. Like, you guys are doing something right. You took something from a small little warehouse in Melbourne, Australia, and now started selling it across the entire world. And people are like, your distillery of the year in 2022 like that's very cool it's an awesome feather to have in your cap and when you're talking about people at your event space or people at your visitor center it's it's something you can go back to like hey we've been doing this now for over or nearly a decade and we're doing it right we're making something that people really do enjoy and we're doing it our way instead of taking whiskey from somewhere else in the world bring it back here blending it um which is fine and it's totally cool yeah. and there's great there's whiskey doing nothing that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah nothing wrong with that. That's not the reason we got into business. Right. Your whole your whole ethos is still intact ten years later almost. We're, we're almost ten years into it. And that's this really cool product to have. And that's I think the same thing that Star Wars can save too. It was the same thing. It was like, how do we represent Melbourne, Australia in a whiskey bottle? Now they don't have a farm and yeah. all that, but they do have a space that they call their own and the whole barrel aging process, which is unique to the distillery and versus anywhere else in the world. So I think validation is the number one thing and it just creates more trust with your customers. Yeah. And it's a cool little metal to put in your bottle too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You know, I, I've mentioned him several times, but I, you know, listen to this someday, Rob, you know, we, we truly appreciate like what yeah, he does for us. Bet. Uh, you know, brought him on, you know, people often ask, how do you hire a distiller? And um, the answer is not necessarily what you see on the resume. It's, you know, can you, do they have common sense? Do they have a work ethic? Do they know how to use a broom? Are they willing to drive a forklift? And, and are they passionate about what, yeah. what you know? But, is there a curious mind in there? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, being a distiller is about the most thankless job there is. You know, you guys talk to Rob for three minutes. He's in there with his headphones on, running the <laughs> distillery and blending and, and um, excuse me, and, and finishing a mash and making cuts. And, um, you know, it takes a special person to do that. One thing, you know, I don't, you guys haven't seen Rob's card, but his title is Master Distiller. Mm-hmm. Most people, or far too many people, I should say, open up a distillery on a Monday and they have a Master Distiller on a Tuesday. You know, and, and we've always taken the approach that you need to earn that title. Yeah. And, when, when we got those three double golds at, at San Francisco from whiskey that Rob made, from whiskey that Rob blended, after Rob literally got a master's degree in distillation and fermentation sciences from Harriet Watt, I don't know what other boxes we need to check to give him that title. <laughs> yeah. So we made him burn his business cards. And new master's, master, uh, Starting all over. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, our fun way of, you know, telling Rob, you know, how much we appreciate what he does and what he brings here and. We have life-size cutouts of him at various places in the distillery. <laughs> I've and, noticed that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he's a part of this team. And 
you know, we, we appreciate what he does for us. Absolutely. And I think experimenting and setting yourself out there a little bit differently by doing you know, LTOs or doing a single barrel program is really a great way to grow the brand. Have you guys seen success in that with uh, single barrels? And yes. Um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, they're high quality, good, good juice. Yeah. But also because I can do them. Yeah. You know, I have the glass and I, you know, I'm hearing people are taking six, nine months to do single barrels right yeah. now. I can do them in 60 days. And so retailer, if you need a single barrel, <laughs> Nick at whiskeyacres.com. Reach out to me. I think I was literally following you guys for about three, four months at the end of last year selling single barrels. I'd walk into account and they'd be kind of like finishing theirs off in sales or just bought one. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're like our second one. Whiskey Acres was our first one. I'm like, all right, let's do this. Cool. Good company to be in. Yeah. Thank you. And you know, it's, and that's a fun thing when we do those, it's really a way to, to showcase Rob's work, the farm's work, but also to give the people who are selling it, some equity in it. You yeah. Know, we don't yeah. just say, here's your single barrel. We let them be part of the process. Ideally, they can come out here and thief it themselves. That's you know, cool. We get them a handful of barrels that are nothing like one to the other so that they can like, find their flavor. Mm-hmm. And that shows. It really does. I know you guys to get going. I don't want to hold your wife up because you owe her a fucking lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, what is what is the Whiskey Acres flavor profile or what is the flavor of Whiskey Acres? What was it you said earlier? I mean, there's a minerality that, okay. that's a common vein. That's just what I get personal. We, we call it grain flavor. Okay. You know, and it's, it's like showcasing the mature raw ingredients mm-hmm. that are processed in a way that, you know, you, they still, they, they have like, it tastes like the farm, but at the same time mm. you get those wood sugars, you get some of those tannins, um, you know, it, it tastes like where we are as yeah. opposed to it tastes like the barrel we put it in. And and that's what we're damn proud of is that that we the stuff we put in that bottle um you know showcases both you know the distillation process and the, the aging process but doesn't allow one to shade the other mm. in a way that you know they're both important. Yeah, awesome. Well, I can remember when we f- our first product out was a 100 proof 97 proof corn whiskey. And I could just remember people tasting that going if you put this in a barrel, it's going to be fantastic. I'm like, well, I did, and it's you're right, it's going to be, and that's that's what we're <laughs> mm-hmm. we're we're essentially selling that now, you know, slightly modified recipe, but mm. but like selling clear whiskey while you're telling a story of just wait for us, just wait for us is one, you know, trust me, yeah, one of the most difficult things to ever do. I bet, um, but you know, selling whiskey. I have to joke now as a guy who used to be the guy making it, mm-hmm. I said, making it's the easy part. Selling it's the hard part, <laughs> you know? Uh, but the guy who's making it today makes selling it easier for us. Really, really quick, very, very quick story on this. I was out here beginning of last year, uh, doing a pick and we narrowed it down to two whiskeys that were clear favorites for two totally different reasons mm. one of them was nick distillate one of them was rob distillate so rob, so nick i, I don't want to <laughs> i'm going to toot your horn a little bit here you you held your own with the whole distilling part uh yeah they were they were both fantastic i think yours leaned lean towards the sweeter which i think yep. your palate does yes, typically yep. and uh we we ended up going with rob's but i think they were equally good whiskeys it was a coin flip at that point but I think we end up, I think we still have that barrel here now. I was going to say, yeah. I know you said you were going to barrel it as a distillery exclusive, and I said I'd be first in line to buy one. Actually, so. I, I know we still have it. Here. <laughs> you know, so, you know, just the other things I would add before we wrap here yeah. is that 
you know, we talked earlier, one of the awesome projects we have that, that are a real build on our artisan series is Jamie has developed our own in-house proprietary hybrid seed corn. Yeah. Clever going into this. Yeah. Uh, you know, he took, did a ton of research and found uh, an heirloom varietal of yellow corn out of um, uh, Minnesota with prohibition era uh, history. Mm. Uh, also found an, a red open pollinated variety of corn uh, out of Italy that's known for uh, making polenta. So just major, major, major flavor and cross those together to get something that has these wonderful agronomic characteristics so it can grow and stand and be harvested, but also carry the flavor characteristics from the, um, the, the Flint corn. Mm -hmm. And we planted 15 acres of it this year. Uh, we've been doing looks at it, you know, harvest is coming up in the next, you know, four to six weeks. It's fantastic. You know, and when we're able to like truly prove it, um, we're probably going to really start to phase out of those commercially viable, uh, available yellow dent corns and focus our efforts on things that we not only grow, but oh. breed <laughs> and, and really take, you know, our unique aspect of seed to spirit to a whole nother level. That's amazing. That's quite amazing. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, don't want to hold you up any more than that. That's going to be uh we need to have another round two of this podcast <laughs> i guess sit here and just talk whiskey corn varietals and everything like that for another hour or so but don't want to hold your your wife up as we've been talking about um how can people buy whiskey acres how can they come to the distillery all that good stuff so whiskeyacres.com is our website uh we're on we have a great facebook and instagram platform as well uh on our uh, website we have a um, link up there that says store locator so they can help you find the different places throughout the state that sell our product in one form or fashion. Uh, we have a beautiful visitor center that's open to the public on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. You know, hours vary a little bit, so go to the website for mm -hmm. that. But we do several tours on a weekend. Tours take you through the, the farms a little bit, uh, talk about, you know, those things I, I mentioned oh. earlier about the why of what we do, and then show you the how of turning that kernel of corn into a bottle of whiskey. And then finish with a, a tasting of three or four products in the distillery. So like a true, like authentic tour with a fantastic team of tour guides. One of the things we do when we bring on a team here, a new team member, is before they're able to take their first shift, they have to spend an entire day with Rob. Love that. And, and so when they're giving a tour, they're not talking about things that they like heard about. They're talking about things they did, they yeah. experienced, they saw, they smelled, they tasted. And that takes the level of, of interaction engagement we have from a staff standpoint just to another level. Um, we have fantastic array of like the, the state law, the way we have to, to deal with it is we can only sell things we make uh, from a cocktail standpoint. So we have, you know, 10 or 12 different cocktails that are, you know, go from neat or old fashioned or Manhattans, you know, on the traditional side of thing to a bourbon slush hmm. uh, that the Chicago Tribune named the number one drink in the state of Illinois a couple oh, of years ago. Dang. So, you know, we, we, we uh, run the gamut there. Uh, we have live music and food trucks out here every Friday, Saturday, Sunday as well. So uh, if you don't think you're a whiskey drinker, and I doubt there's many of them listening to this podcast right now, but <laughs> if you're married to somebody who doesn't think they're a whiskey drinker or something. A lot of wine drinkers that, out there. What? <laughs> bring them here and, and you know, they'll, they'll experience like a, just a really cool, authentic farm experience that is enhanced by you know our, our cool cocktail program and great staff. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for the hospitality. Ian, thanks for co-hosting. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for putting us all together, too. Absolutely. After just Glad a few tries. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll have round two coming out soon, hopefully. Um, until then, guys, have a great uh, rest of your week, and uh, enjoy that glass, and come buy some Whiskey Acres uh, whiskey, because it's damn good. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers.